All right, well, welcome again. It's good to be with all of you today. I'm excited for today's service. This is something that's really on my heart today. It's something that is going to be fun to talk about today. And also, I need to say Happy Easter, because as you know, we are in this Easter tide season where we're celebrating Easter for 50 days. We're celebrating from Resurrection Day up till the day of Pentecost. So not only are we celebrating Easter, but as a church and as a community, we're anticipating for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So during this 50 days, we've been actively involved in journaling Scripture, taking a Scripture and a day on the Holy Spirit and just reflecting on what that means. And that's been a good, fun time for me doing that this month. I've really enjoyed Scripture journaling. And I will tell you, it probably changed a lot for me about four weeks ago. You remember when Susie Rensma got up here and shared a little bit about Scripture journaling and kind of the journey that God has been taking her on. And it was one of those moments when she started to talk that I knew that I needed to listen, that I knew that I really needed to pay attention. You know that feeling when you just know you're supposed to listen to something? I think that's the own, your own Holy Spirit inside of you saying, okay, pay attention because this is some information that you need to, you need to hear. And as Susie talked about scripture journaling and how the Lord has had her on this journey, she said something significant. She said, you know, when you focus on something, you start to see it. You start to see it show up in different places. You start focusing on one scripture, and then later you see that in other parts of the scripture. And as she said that, I thought, okay, that's a good challenge. I really I need to do that more. And so I kind of started, instead of kind of scripture journaling, something that I'd occasionally do, I started putting that at the top of my morning. That would be the first thing that I would do is, you know, this month as a church, we're, we're using this guide. And each day we're going through and picking a scripture and say, okay, let's, let's just focus on that scripture for a while. What does that scripture really mean? What is God saying through that scripture? And, and so I've been starting to do that the first thing in the morning. It's been very significant because then I start seeing that scripture. I see that work of the Holy Spirit through the rest of my day. I might see it in other scripture that I'm reading. So that's been kind of fun for me to do. So that's kind of a fun message for me to talk about today. Because I want to talk about how the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8 and Colossians 3 to set our mind on heavenly things. Paul says, set your mind on things above. Don't think and get just caught up in worldly things. Think about heavenly things. And that's such good advice. And I think we all sit back and say, but how do we really do that? How do I do that in my own life? Have you ever had that experience when you buy something and then you look around and everybody else has the same thing you bought? I had that with Sam. When we bought Sam his winter coat, we picked out this coat for him. I thought, that's kind of a cool coat. I've never seen anybody wear that coat until we walked out of the store and the next week, I saw 10 people wearing that coat. It was the exact same thing when I bought my Honda. I bought a Honda Cross Tour about seven years ago. And I liked that car. And I went to the dealership. I thought, I don't really see that car that much. Until I drove home. And I saw five other people driving the same car. And I'm thinking, man, that's interesting. What I thought was so unique about what I just bought is kind of very common. But see, there's an actual science behind what Susie said about you focus on something and you start to see it show up in different places. Or when you buy something, you start to notice it in other places. See, there's a part of your brain that does that for you. 
See, our brains are incredibly busy each and every day. Our brains are constantly looking around, taking in a lot of different information. And like a computer, if our brain receives too much information at once, it's going to crash. So what our brain likes to do is it likes to filter out some of the information. Maybe some of the information that I don't need to see or I don't need to hear or participate in, my brain's just going to kind of filter that out for me and I'm not even going to see or experience that. See, over time, my brain has figured out what I like and what I don't like. So my brain gives me the information that I want to participate in. Now, this is an actual science. Let me read it to you. The reticular activating, activating system is a bundle of nerves at our brainstem that filters out unnecessary information so the important stuff gets through. There's a scientific name for that. There's a part of your brain that filters out information that you don't need to see or participate in. And over time, consciously or subconsciously, our brain gets kind of figured out what information Jack likes and what he doesn't like. See, that's why when Becky and I can go on a car ride, and Becky can notice a red-tailed hawk in a tree a mile away. Becky likes birds. She notices birds. I can notice my four favorite cars no matter where I am. <laughs> Becky doesn't notice my cars. See, my brain has figured out Jack likes cars, so I'm always seeing the cars that I like. And see, over time, this is, a, this is a fascinating quote by this article by Jerry Rohr. He says, over time, through this process, we attract what we focus on. We attract what we focus on. Now, that's kind of interesting. See, my brain's always showing me a car. Becky's brain's always showing her birds. But our minds are programmed, and that's really powerful when it works towards your advantage. But it can be a little bit dangerous. So I'm going to do a little experiment with all of you to show how you can train your brain quickly. What I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you a color to think about, and then you're going to close your eyes, and for about 15 seconds, you're going to think about that color, and when I tell you to, you're going to open your eyes and look around the room. All right, so I want you to think about the color red. Now just shut your eyes and just think about the color red for about 15 seconds. So all I want you to do is think about red. All right, now open your eyes and just start looking around. All around the sanctuary. You're looking back at other people. Did you notice anything? See, maybe you start to notice red that you haven't seen before. Like you might have noticed a little red piping here around the Bible or maybe that little red there. Maybe you saw the red here. Maybe you're like, I didn't see anything. All right, well then go home and do it. You'll be amazed how easily you can train your brain to look for something. And now you all got to stop. You can't do that the rest of the service. Are you that are home right now? Pay attention. <laughs> but see, what happened was we just quickly trained our brain. Look for something red. See how easy that is. That's kind of fun to do when this works for your advantage. But what if this works for your disadvantage? See, that's what's hard about reticular activating system is that your reticular activating system shows you what you believe to be true. But what if you believe some lies? 
What if you believe lies about yourself? Your brain's going to constantly be showing you the lies that you believe about yourself. Maybe you believe that you're an insignificant person and that you don't matter much, and you really believe that is true. Your brain's always going to be showing you information to kind of support that in your own life. Or maybe you struggle a lot of lust. Your brain's always going to show you what you like, you think is attractive. So you see, on one hand, this can be incredibly dangerous. But on the other hand, you think how powerful this is. And that's how powerful scripture journaling can be. Or when you take a scripture or you read the Bible and you focus on it, and you say, God, I'm just going to focus on this for a while. So you can train your brain and your mind is like starts to understand that verse and you start to look for that verse in other places. You train your brain that this is what I believe is true. And then your brain follows along and shows you other truth in your life. That's how we train our brain to process and show us what is true. And that's the beautiful thing about it. But that dangerous part is when you believe lies and you're constantly bombarded with those lies. So what do you do? How do you retrain your brain if you're believing lies that aren't true? I like this secular article I read. Listen to what the author said. He said, if your RAS shapes your reality and beliefs, you need to start taking control of it by priming it to focus on the things you want to attract in your life. You need to start priming that part of the brain. And that's a good question. What do you want to be noticing in your life? What do you want to be seeing on a daily basis? See, this author wasn't the first person who said, you need to retrain your brain. You need to prime your brain. See, the Apostle Paul said the exact same thing in Colossians 3, verse 2. He said, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Another translation says, think about the things of heaven, not about the things of earth. Why is Paul saying that? Because he wants us to slow down. He wants us to understand we will attract what we focus on. So Paul's saying focus on heavenly things. Focus on godly things. Focus on good things. And then you start seeing those things happen in your life. See, in the book of Romans, in, Roman 8, in Romans 8, Paul says about the exact same thing. He says, set your mind. It's a big part of Romans 8. Set your mind. So I want to talk about Romans 8 today, but before I get to Romans 8, I want to Talk about a little bit about Romans 7. See, Romans 8 is this incredible book of the Bible. A lot of your theologians, really smart biblical authorities will tell you that Romans 8 is one of the most powerful chapters in the Bible. And the reason it's so powerful is because it shows you how the Christian life really works in your own life. See, a lot of people wonder, they think, well, if the Bible's really true, then how does the rest, how does this stuff happen? And that's Romans 8. It kind of comes in there and shows us a little bit how does it actually happen in your life. So Romans 8 is a fascinating chapter to read, but at times it can feel a little bit intimidating if you feel like things aren't happening in my life like I would like them to really happen. And sometimes you can be a little intimidated reading Romans 8 because you think, well, maybe I'm not good enough or maybe I'm doing something wrong that I'm not seeing the Christian life really happen. So I'm going to jump back to chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, you get the Apostle Paul who wrote the book of Romans at his most honest and at his most vulnerable. 
Paul's going to tell you what life can look like for him on a daily basis. So listen to me as I read Romans chapter 7, verse 15 to 25. Paul says, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree with the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is a sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing it. It is a sin living in me that does it. I've discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart. But there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is Jesus Christ our Lord. So you will see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. That's Paul at his most honest and vulnerable. Now you read that section of Scripture and you kind of wonder, is Paul writing this to describe what his life was like before Jesus? Or is it his life after Jesus? Because if he wrote it to describe his life before Jesus, you could say, well, I understand that. I could understand why he doesn't do what he wants to do and does what he... Yeah, you get that. That was the hardest message to prepare. I spent 90% of my time in sermon preparation reading that 10 scriptures. So if my message isn't that good, it's because I had to focus on how to read that. It's like reading Dr. Seuss out loud 10 times. So anyway... But you wonder, okay, Paul, are you describing your life before Jesus or after Jesus? So see, some commentaries, they'll tell you, nope, Paul's writing about what life was like before Jesus. Other commentaries say, no, Paul's talking about his life right now. So now what do you do? When you have a problem like that, you can't decide, then you go to Tim Keller. Tim Keller's one of my favorite theologians out of New York. And what does Tim Keller say? He's talking about his life before Jesus and his life right now. It's both. That's a good answer. So listen to what Tim Keller has to say about this passage. This is no easier to, easier to read. Tim says, All of life is a battle between two selves. But there's a different war before you became a Christian from the war that happens after you become a Christian. What Paul is trying to show us here is there's a war between the selves that happens before you met Christ and then there's a war between the selves that happens after you met Christ. The war between the selves before you met Christ is a war with no hope. You can't win it. The war after you meet Christ, now that's a war you cannot lose. So this is a beautiful chapter that Paul is taking the time to tell us what it's like before Christ and what it's like after Christ. See, in this section of Scripture, Paul talks about himself like there's two different people in one body. There's a part of him that wants to do all the right things, and then there's a part of Paul that wants to do all the wrong things. 
And I think we can kind of relate to those days. There's days we struggle. We feel like Paul, like, yeah, I kind of get that. So in, in, in earlier parts of chapter, uh, chapter 7, Paul, ta- Paul does talk about life before Jesus. Paul talks about the fact that he knew the Ten Commandments well, and he wanted to obey them, but there was nothing inside of him that could obey the laws. And he talks about how he wanted to, how he had a desire, but before he knew Christ, he had no ability to do it. And he talks about the differences once he had Christ in his life, then suddenly the battles that were before him, he could have victory over. See, Paul is telling the church, he's saying, look, we all have this internal compass that we know right from wrong. We know what we should do and we know what we shouldn't do. And then we get frustrated because we want to do the right thing, but we always don't do that. But Paul is saying to the church, but this is a good news. Now that you have Jesus in your life, you can have that victory. You no longer have to be a slave to sin. No longer does that sinful human nature inside of you get to call all the shots. Paul says those days are over. You now have victory because you have a relationship with Jesus. So that's good news. So what Paul is telling us, that part of you that wants to do the right thing, you've got to nurture that part of you. You've got to encourage that part of you. You have to read the Bible, read the Scriptures, part of community. You need to build up that part of you that wants to do the right thing. But now, what do you do with that part of you that doesn't want to do the right thing? That's the struggle. See, some of us like to ignore that part that likes to do the wrong things. or Sometimes some of us, we just kind of pet it a little bit and say, well, I just occasionally do the wrong thing. I don't do it all the time, so it's not that bad anymore. But see, what Paul tells us to do in the book of Colossians, Colossians 3, verse 5, what Paul tells us to do with that sinful nature is he says you have to kill it. You have to kill it. You don't keep it alive. You kill it. You don't pretend it's not there. You kill it. You don't occasionally do it. You kill it. Paul says that's what we do with that part of us that is sinful. We have to kill it. So how do you kill that part of yourself, part of that sinful nature that you have? How do we really do it? I think the first thing that we have to recognize is that we can't do it on our own. Because if we could defeat that sinful part of our lives, then we wouldn't need Jesus. Then none of us would have had to become a Christian. We could have done it on our own. And see, that's why Paul says in Romans, in Verse 25, he says, Thanks be to God through our Jesus Christ our Lord, because Christ has given us new life, that we can defeat that sinful part of us. Now, there's many days that it does seem like that sinful part of us is still alive. Some days it seems dead, and then the next day you're like, Whoa, how did that happen to me? Somebody, somebody once asked Paul David Tripp, they said to Paul, they said, How come so many Christian leaders fail? How come so many Christian leaders in later part of their life sin or end up in a big sinful scandal? What happens? His answer was simple. He said, sometimes it's easy to forget the power of sin. It's easy to forget the power of that indwelling sin. It's easy to forget that human nature in us that one day you think it's dead and gone when the next day it seems to revive itself. 
His warning was, don't forget the power of sin. And don't forget that on a daily basis, we need to be killing the sin that tries to rise up in our life. One author, John Owens, he says, he says, you must always be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's pretty serious. We must always be killing sin. See, we have an enemy that plays very unfair. He's always trying to get us to do the wrong thing. He's trying to always get us to remember the wrong thing. He's always trying to trick us. He's always trying to do what he did to Adam and Eve and say, but that's not going to be a big deal if you do that. But it's a reminder that on a daily basis we need to be killing sin, that we need to be observant to the schemes of the enemy. But how do you do that? How do you do that? Because there's days it seems like it's dead, and the next day it seems like it's back. Well, now we're going to jump into Romans 8. We're going to go to verses 5 through 14. It's kind of hard to do a message on Romans 8. I realized afterwards, I thought, man, I should have just done a series and started from the beginning. It's, it's well, not a good idea, but anyway. That's why Hezekiah was protesting back there. Like, you can't start at verse 5. You've got to start at 1. <laughs> Now he's ignoring me. We'll get to one, Hezekiah. All right. So this is what Paul says. He said, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. In one fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also live to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and debtors, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So in this passage, Paul is giving us some instructions. He's saying there's two groups of people. There's people who live according to the Spirit, and there's people who live according to the flesh. So what's the difference between these two groups of people? And Paul says it's pretty simple. In verse 5 and 6, he said, it's what they set their mind on. One group sets their minds on things of the Spirit, and the other group sets their minds on the things of the flesh. Paul's basically saying in verse 7 that we live according to what we set our minds on. You would think Paul knew a little bit of the science about the brain. That we live according to the information we feed our brain. That what we set our mind on is what will attract us. What we set our mind on is what we will see. What we set our mind on is what we will observe. And sooner or later we'll be enticed by it either in the right way or the wrong way. So that's why Paul is saying if you, what you set your mind on is extremely important. 
So what does it mean? Why is Paul saying set your mind up? What, what does set really mean? See, notice first, he doesn't say set your mind on the Spirit. He says set your mind on the things of the Spirit. That's a big distinction, on the Spirit or things of the Spirit. So when you think of the Spirit, then you start to think of the Spirit as a person. What are his attributes? What are his qualities? What is he like? What is he dislike? What pleases the Spirit? What doesn't please the Spirit? That's what Paul is saying. Think about those things. What does the Spirit like? And to set your mind means you give careful consideration. To set your mind means it's very intentional. It's purposeful. To set your mind on something means you plan. You plan accordingly. If you want to set your minds on the things above, you just can't wing it. You need to be purposeful. You need to be purposeful in your obedience to Christ. You need to be purposeful in your devotion to Christ. You need to be purposeful in your life. If you want to attract the things that you like, Paul's saying, be purposeful. Think about it. Think about what the Spirit loves. Think about the Holy Spirit as a person. How do you build a personal relationship with another person? You look for common interests that you talk about. How do I build a relationship with Becky? Well, I learned to talk about birds. I know Becky loves birds. So because I love Becky and I want to spend time with Becky, we talk about birds. We don't talk about cars, though. She's not, she's not that faithful right now. She's a, but she's getting there. But I can spot an American goldfinch. I know an eagle. <laughs> but I know these little sparrows. You know, I had no idea how many birds there are in Michigan in the winter. There's thousands. And they're all at our backyard, and I'm feeding them now. Because Becky's, I found that what she likes, I started asking her questions about it. That's how you set your mind on the Spirit. That's why I think this scripture journaling can be so important. Or doing Bible reading in the morning. It's reading it and saying, setting your mind on that. And you retrain your mind, you retrain your brain, and you figure out what does God like, and then you start doing what God likes to do because he draws you in. Becky, she can talk about birds to anybody, and it's like it's contagious. It's like that's a really cool thing. That's what God does when you read his word. He draws you into the word, and he changes your desire. He changes your heart. I'll tell you the first few conversations about birds, I thought this is stupid. Who cares about birds? But you become fascinating after a while. And that's the same thing the scripture does to us. And that's why I think if, if you're, you have trouble reading or you're, you're, you haven't really found a rhythm to incorporate Bible study, I think one of the best ways is just scripture journaling. Just take a verse a day. Just a verse a day is a good jump into it. I think it's fun with scripture journaling. It's just you, you just look at one verse and you start to see it pop up in other little places. It's kind of like those little American goldfinches. They're everywhere. I never noticed them a year ago. It's the same thing now when I, when I do scripture journaling on the Holy Spirit we're doing this month. You start seeing, oh, I never thought of that attribute of the Holy Spirit. If I want the Holy Spirit working in my life, I need to know the attributes of the Holy Spirit. I need to build my relationship with the Holy Spirit based on what He is like. 
So how do you know? How do you know what you set your mind on? Think about. What do you spend your time thinking about? What brings you joy? What brings you peace? What brings you hope? Does Jesus or God or the Holy Spirit intersect in these parts of your life? What do you, when you think about something that makes you happy, what do you think about? See, these are places that God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit want to be the main thing we think about. That when we think about joy, we think about relationship with God, or we think about peace, we think of what the Holy Spirit does in our life. See, listen to what Paul says in verse 9. He says, those who are not of the flesh have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. That's Paul's reminder to us on how we set our minds on the thing above is that we have the actual living God inside of us. That he's showing us how to do it. That he's prompting, that he's leading the way. I don't have to sit down and struggle and think, how am I going to put God first or what am I going to do? That's what the Holy Spirit's inside of each of us doing. But we have to follow the steps that he's leading for us. We have to follow the guide, guidance that he's giving to us. See, reticular activating system, that's fun. That's a lot of fun when you can see colors of red in the church sanctuary you never saw it before. Or I can spot my favorite cars. But like I said before, it's pretty dangerous when your brain just starts reminding you of lies that you believe about yourself. When it reminds you of painful things in your life. And we know we have an enemy that's always trying to remind us of what he thinks about us and trying to make us believe in what he said about us. See, a consistent theme all through Scripture is about our identity in Christ. That our identity in Christ will determine our behavior. In other words, what you think about yourself will determine how you behave and how you will act. If you think... I'll never amount to anything. Or if you think I'll never be successful, there's a good chance you won't be successful. Or if you think I'm not a very valuable person, there's a good chance you're going to end up being a people pleaser for most of your life. See, there's simply patterns that we pick up in our life. What we think about ourselves is usually the way we start to behave. And what we like to do a lot of times is we think, well, if I can change my behavior, then I can change my identity. If I can change the way I behave, maybe then I'll change the way I think about myself. Well, that's a good strategy very short term. That doesn't work long term. See, God always likes to come in and change our identity, help us to understand who we truly are, and then we see our behavior change. That's a lot easier when you do it the way that God did it. Behavior modification, that, that's helpful for a little while, but that's never going to last very long. See, God wants to change our identity. One of my favorite stories of a biblical character that had a change of identity is Gideon in the Old Testament. In the book of Judges, God comes to Gideon in Judges first, chapter 6, verse 12. And it says, When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Then the Lord turned to Gideon and said, Go in my strength, because I am going to use you to save Israel. 
That's a powerful word when God comes to Gideon and says, you are my mighty warrior. I'm going to use you to save Israel. But I don't think Gideon ever expected anybody to call him a mighty warrior. Gideon expected somebody to say, you're insignificant. You're kind of a loser. You'll never amount to anything. Gideon, you'll never have a big part or role to play in life. You just, there's nothing valuable about you. That's what Gideon thought about himself. How do we know that? Because when you read verse 15, Gideon, this is what Gideon said to the Lord after he called him a mighty warrior. Gideon said, pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Gideon said, I am the most insignificant person in my entire family. How could I ever do anything that would save Israel? That's what Gideon thought about himself. That's what Gideon thought his identity was. I am the least in my entire family. But notice when God called Gideon a mighty warrior. Other translations will say hero or a man of valor. Something started to shift inside of Gideon. After he said to God, um, excuse me, I don't think you understand. The next thing that he said to God was, um, I need to bring an offering. I need to give you an offering. See, something was starting to happen. Something was starting to change inside of Gideon when God said to him, you're a mighty warrior. I think Gideon started to believe it. And when he started to believe that God was a warrior, that he was the warrior, what did he want to do? He wanted to worship God. So he came to give him an offering. And God receives the offering... And then God told Gideon he had to do something. He told Gideon he had to do some next steps. He told Gideon, I want you to go destroy the altar to Baal that your, your, your ancestors set up. It's interesting. Gideon never had to do hand-to-hand -hand combat with the enemies. See, God's always going to defeat your enemies. You just follow the next step that God gives to you. It's not your job to destroy the enemy. It's God's job to destroy the enemy. It's your job to be obedient to what God tells you to do next. God told Gideon, I want you to destroy that altar. And I want you to blow a shofar. And I want you to assemble an army of 300. And I'm taking a cool build, big story and shrinking it down. So I want you just to get a little army together. God told Gideon these next steps to do. And then what happened after Gideon did all that God told him to do? It tells us that the enemies that were coming after Gideon turned on themselves. Gideon didn't have to go to battle. The Israelites didn't have to go to battle. Because when the Israelites were obedient to do the steps that God called them to do, he delivered them from the hand of the enemy. 
But the Gideon had to do the steps that were set before him. See, a lot of times we just want to ignore the steps that God tells us to do. But God gave specific steps to Gideon. He says, this is what I want you to do first. This is what I want you to do second. What I want you to do third. What I want you to do fourth. And then they watched the enemies be defeated. That's a beautiful story. And it's a good reminder for each of us that we don't have to destroy our enemy. Because we can't. We don't have the ability. But what we do have is the Holy Spirit inside of us confirming the voice of God to us so we know the next steps that we need to do. See, the reason that we do these steps is not because we're trying to get something from God. It's not like I'm doing the right steps and God's like, yay, Jack, I'll give you something. No. The day I got saved, I got every single thing that I need from Jesus. I lacked nothing. I had it all. That's like when Ron said, and then Jesus just sat down. You got it all. There's nothing more you need from me. You have every single thing you need. So then why did Gideon actually have to do the things that God told him to do? See, we don't discover all that God has for us until we're obedient to God. We don't discover all that God has for us until he tells us, until we do what he told us to do next. That's how we receive everything God has for us. We just keep doing the next thing he told us to do. God's never holding out on us saying, oh, you haven't jumped high enough for me. Uh-uh. God gives us everything we need, but he gives it to us at the right timing that is going to be good and beneficial for us. And that's the beauty of the story of Gideon, that God radically changed his identity. And once his identity was changed and he believed that he was the mighty warrior, then all his behavior started to change. What he thought about who he was started to change. And then what happened? Then Gideon could do the next step. And then the next step. And then the next step. And then the next step. Gideon could change what he focused on. Gideon had the ability to now set his mind on things above because for so long, all Gideon thought about was, I'm insignificant. But now that Gideon knew that he was a mighty warrior, he could set his mind on things above. So that's all of our challenge. What are we going to set our mind on? What are we going to set our mind on? How are we going to be purposeful in our relationship with the Holy Spirit? How are we going to be purposeful in our growth as believers? That's the question for us today. And the answer is, you follow the Holy Spirit inside of you that's leading you and guiding you and directing you. And if you're like, I'm having kind of trouble with that, that's why God put us in community. 
that we help other people understand as well what God's saying to you. That's why I said in the beginning when Susie got up here I, a few weeks ago, I just knew that I had to listen to that part. Because sometimes God uses other people to speak into your situation. We just need to focus on things above. In Philippians 4, verse 8, Paul says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. And this is how I'll close my message with one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Libby is going to sing for us that beautiful song called The Blessing. I think we all love to come to church when Libby's going to sing that song. You know, today, if you want to sit while she sings it or stand, you do what you feel you're being led by the Holy Spirit to do. But maybe it's time, maybe somebody should take the time. And you're at home, don't turn off yet. Stay. This is the best part of the service when Jake and Libby finish with the music. Say, God, what is my next step? What am I supposed to do next? Maybe it's like Paul that you need to get raw and honest and vulnerable and say this is what it's like. Maybe you just need to do the last thing God told you to do, but you forgot to do it. Or maybe you need to forgive someone. I don't know what it is, but let's ask the Holy Spirit to show each of us. God, I thank you for today, and I thank you for bringing us here. God, we thank you for the indwelling presence of God that is inside each of us as believers. God, we thank you, Lord, that you lead us and you direct us. And God, I thank you that you speak to us just like you spoke to Gideon. And you tell us what is our true identity. You tell us who we truly are in you, even if we feel the exact opposite. God, I pray for everybody listening to me today, Lord, that you would minister to them by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would encourage those who need encouragement and comfort those who need comfort and speak to those who need to hear the truth. God, we admit there's, it's easy to be like Gideon and say, but you don't understand, this is the way I really am. God, forgive us for not taking you at your word. Forgive us, Lord, when we have failed to really be purposeful on our devotion towards you or to you, where we have neglected the reading of the word or gathering together or participating. God, help us to be a people that are devoted to you. God, I pray for just refreshment today, Lord. Even as we sit in the sanctuary, wherever you are, just this beautiful weather and the refreshing wind, Lord, would you refresh us today, Lord, with your Holy Spirit, that we would have a new unction to serve you. And God, we pray for our city as well. God, we pray that you'd bless all the churches in our city, all these life-giving churches. And God, we just continue to pray for revival in this city. God, we pray for revival and renewal. God, I pray, the Lord, that people would come to know you as Lord and Savior. God, I pray for people in the city who are lost, that don't know you, Lord, that you would bring revival to this city. And God, prepare us as a church for this coming revival. God, would you bring renewal to this body? 
And Lord, help us to focus on things above. Help us to set our minds on you. Lord, we love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Children. 
Amen. Thank you, Libby. Thank you, Jake. That was beautiful. Please stand up as I speak the word of God over us before we leave today. In 2 Chronicles 21, it says, But you will not even need to fight. Take your positions, then stand still and watch the Lord's victory. He is with you. O people of God, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out against them tomorrow, for the Lord is with you. Listen to me, all you people of God. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be able to stand firm. Believe in his prophets, and you will succeed. Give thanks to the Lord. His faithfulness endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord. His faithfulness endures forever. Go in peace. God bless you all. It was wonderful to be with you. Have a great week.